Let's go this morning to our text. I begin a series this morning entitled Be God's People, a study of the Beatitudes. This study will take us throughout the summer uh, into the 1st of August, and we're going to look at the Beatitudes, uh, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount throughout the summer. But to get us there, I want to help you frame your thinking for this whole series this morning by asking you this question, what are your summer plans? What are your summer plans? Summer's an interesting time of the year, isn't it? For many of us, a fun time. Where are we going? That's often a question that determines our summer. Who are we going to see? You know, you get that cheap vacation by visiting mom and dad or uh, by tacking along when they go to the beach or mountains or wherever it is they go, right? Guilty as charged. What are we going to experience? That's the new question that families are asking for vacation. You got to swing me through the trees if I'm going to be impressed with this vacation, right? I mean, those are the kinds of questions that frame our summer But what if in our summer plan making, we dared to reset the metric by which we made our plans and evaluated them? What if we had better questions to ask and questions that in asking them throughout the summer would shape our life to be blessed by God? You'll be happy to know at LifePoint We have a plan for your life this summer. Now, I know you all reach for your wallet and you step back ready to bolt for the door. Get the kids, honey, we're out, right? No, it's okay. It's all right. I'm not trying to replace the plans that you've made based on the other questions. But what I want to dare to do in this series is to raise your expectation for what gets accomplished in your life this summer. I want you to set this priority that God's kingdom values would become an ever increasing and ever deepening manner the ruling guide of your heart, of your mind, and of your life. Summer is so often a season when we kind of check out, isn't it? We get just go, oh man, it's a good time just to chill, take some time off, relax. And you know, all of those things are important because the natural rhythms of our life are God-ordained. There's a time for everything, the Bible tells us. And summer is a good time when schedules ought to be adjusted accordingly in our culture so that we can get some more rest. But it seems like at the end of summer, what I hear most of all is, I need a retreat from my summer, right? We take a vacation and then we need to get back to work to get some rest from our vacation, But what if we change the metrics to define our summer plans so that we could be more encouraged, more edified, and ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ would be more exalted in our life as a result. Friends, walking in godly wisdom for our life begins by embracing his kingdom values. I want to give you a passage of scripture to really kind of frame the entirety of our study this summer. It's from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. And I use this as a a launching point for our series because it reminds us who we are to be. Peter says this, but you are, verse 9, 
a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. What I want to say to you throughout this series this summer is very simple. Life point, let us be God's people. Let us be for the purpose of God and the purposes for which he has set forth for us. Our aim in this series is to celebrate the blessedness of life with God as we live in his kingdom values. He makes us a people for his possession and that possession to become a proclamation of the excellencies of who he is. That means our very life in every detail and even the way we live our life becomes a testimony to the goodness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Settle this matter once for all in your heart that you might receive all that Jesus wants to do in your life, Christian. You, the whole of you, are for God's glory. There is no greater glory, but there are countless lesser ones that are vying for your attentions, your affections, and your obedience every day. Be God's people this series aims to compel you to live in God's blessing by his kingdom values. And so today I want to introduce the series for us. And what I want you to walk away with, not only today, specifically today, but throughout this series is a reminder that Jesus sets people free and he transforms them to live in God's blessing by his kingdom values. This is the work that he is doing as he is working his redeeming love in us. And I want these questions that I pose to you today to frame a series of expectations for you as you come each week and hear another beatitude proclaimed. Let's read Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 12. And let's look at what the word has for us today. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Friends, Jesus sets people free and transforms them to live in God's blessing by his kingdom values. Now, the Beatitudes in these first 12 verses are the beginning of a larger portion of Scripture known as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just completed the introduction to his public ministry. He's been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. He fasted, and the evil one visited him in his weakness in that season towards the end and tempted him with three great temptations by which Jesus responded and refuted the evil one by offering the word of God as his refuge. And we know that he conquered. Very likely, that season in the wilderness was the greatest temptation, but not only that, also the greatest battle Jesus fought, second only to his own crucifixion on the cross at the end of his public ministry. He comes out of the wilderness. He begins to call the disciples to follow him. And they begin to organize around these specific people that Jesus calls to follow him. And when we come to verse 1 of chapter 5, we see where really he's, he's brought this band of highly skilled professionals, not, around him as his first disciples, and he's beginning to reveal God to us. Remember, Jesus is the Word of God who took on flesh and what we see in verse 1 and 2 is really Matthew's introduction, seeing the crowds. That, that phrase there, we see that a number of times throughout the gospel accounts. And we know this, that when Jesus looked on the crowds, he looked on the people. And Luke tells us he looked on them with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know what you call sheep who don't have a shepherd? Dinner. That's what you call them. That's why Jesus had compassion on people in the world. That's why he has compassion on us. Because without a shepherd, we are nothing more than the menu for the evil one. And that's the way Jesus understands and comes to us. And we're seeing this, this incarnate God who's taken on flesh come to us. Coming to the crowds. It says, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, so he goes up on a mountain because in that day, you couldn't have a gathering just anywhere where there was electricity. There were no PAs. There was no AV. There were no special effects or lighting or sound projection. So you had to establish yourself if you wanted to speak to a crowd of people in a place where the natural acoustics would be most advantageous. And it says he sat down, so he assumes what in that day and time would have been a position of authority. Because when the Pharisees and the leaders taught, they taught from a seating position. And that's how the people would have expected him to be in a position of authority to teach. And he says this, he opened his mouth and taught them. Second Timothy chapter 3 tells us, for the word of God is breathed out. And friends, there will never be a moment in the scriptures when you will more immediately see the truth of God incarnate, breathing out the word of God to us. That's what Jesus, who was the living word, who was the incarnate present of God among us, is doing here. Don't miss 
these first two verses that are so critical who tell us that God has come to us and because God has come to us, he came to us in a way that made us approachable to him. He received us, but he gives to us the words that are the very words of life. And what I want this series to be for you this summer is a word that breathes breathe spiritual life into your soul to help you where you are, to encourage you in following the Lord Jesus in every way and what he calls you to do, not just what we dream up for him. This idea of the kingdom of God, what it means, Matthew introduces the kingdom. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he says this, the kingdom of God is at hand. So the presence of Jesus in his arrival is the entrance of the kingdom of God. But we as Christians, we live in this, uh, this, this tension between the already and the not yet. For the kingdom of God has come in Jesus Christ and we live as citizens of heaven in the kingdom of God under the rule and the reign of King Jesus, but yet he's left us here on the earth. And so we are in the world, though we are not of the world. And that's a tension that we grapple with regularly. And Jesus understood this and that's why he's teaching these values that he's teaching. This is the central theme of his preaching. And one could even argue the central theme of the preaching throughout the New Testament is how it is that a Christian lives in the kingdom of God while they're in the world. And that reality... For the Beatitudes come to us to proclaim the values of a life of supreme glory and a life of faithful witness. Everything that we are commanded and designed to be as Christians is set forth for us in this passage of Scripture, friends. God is working for us. God is working in us. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not what we do to become Christians but how it is we live because we are a Christian. Living in God's kingdom means to live under the rule and the reign of King Jesus in every way at all times. And so what does he do? Well, he begins with the things that are of value in God's kingdom. These are the values that we celebrate. These are the values that we honor as of utmost importance in order to live in the kingdom. And what he does is he, he presents them in form of a contrast between the unstated though ever-present values of the world. So you have this blessed are the poor in spirit, which next week we will begin by seeing that's in direct contradiction to the value of the world of the supreme self-independent, self-sufficient person. And in this contrast, he says to us that the blessing of God resides in one of these, but the blessing of the world upon the other. And because of that contrast, it sets for us this seeking after, this understanding that if we want the blessing of God, we too must embrace the values of his kingdom in order to live in the already, but the not yet of our day. Friends, the rich meaning and the radical nature of the Beatitudes calls us to be God's people by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so my aim for today is to help us 
to understand the details of this series in each of the Beatitudes by shaping the way that we come each week to listen to them. How is it that we receive what is being said each week? And that's my aim today. I want to give you three questions to catalyze life transformation and to experience a fuller presence of God. You say, what do you mean by catalyze? I mean that in the way we receive the word of God every week when it is preached, that it will become an initiator or a catalyst within us to bring about by faith the change, the transformation within us us, our very being, that God wants to do in us. And not just to walk away with some simple step of practical application that we can feel good about because we can accomplish it, but to wrestle in the core of our inner being with where God is working in us because only as God works in us will he ever receive glory through us. I hope you entertain a war this summer, a war of the soul to see the transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ more and more into his likeness because he is working in you. Question number one, I want you to come each week ready and pondering the consideration of your life when you ask, do I seek God's blessing as my highest aim as my deepest desire, and as my greatest aspiration for life. This is the way each beatitude begins, with a promise of blessing, right? Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And if we're to understand what it means to seek God's blessing in all of our life, we need a clear understanding of what blessing is. Is because blessed here is a very unique one. It's not necessarily what we often think of when we hear it. Now, let me say this I'm most thankful to the Lord when He readily supplies my illustrations for sermons, and I don't even have to go looking for them. And He has done that bountifully this week. I received via text a link to a YouTube video where a televangelist was talking to another and he was talking about this $54 million jet that God told him to tell the people to provide for him. I'd take a $15 million one, but I don't fly, so any more than I absolutely have to. I hope I don't need to explain how that is not the blessedness I'm talking about today. But it did give me a great opportunity to contrast what we're talking about with blessed. Blessed, friends, is a description of a state of happiness that is upon someone as observed by another this biblical term literally describes the state of human flourishing. It has been said the most Christian thing that we can experience and live out in our life is the most truly human thing that God wants for us. You see, humanity that is broken by sin is not as God created it. And only as we are redeemed through the gospel of Jesus Christ do we come to understand God's created intention to be truly human. And so to live in his kingdom and to live under the blessing of God 
is to flourish humanly as God intended for us to. And that's a radical reorientation of our thinking. It shouldn't be confused just with a a divine action or a divine intervention of blessing where, where God is actively causing the human flourishing by his intervention rather, but in the very way that God created all that is when we practice his blessings, even in the world, even in the world that is broken by sin, we are blessed by a greater glory and a greater goodness because of who we serve here and now in the already, though it is in the context of the not yet fully. Blessed means that we flourish in life when we live by God's kingdom values. And friends, we need to guard against three misconceptions that God's blessing doesn't mean uh, that, that, that we purchase as a commodity or a possession from simply a right transaction with God. God's blessing upon us never means that we've earned it like a reward that we are due in some way or even never is it achieved as a goal is accomplished. Surely, God blesses his people at times and many times that blessing comes through material means. We're not denying that, for material means is the very action and the very understanding of the material world in which we live. And as God provides for his people, often that provision comes through material means. But we're talking about something in the blessed are of the Beatitudes that is so much greater than just a material means. And what Jesus is speaking to here is far more excellent than any material mean or provision of that nature that God would give you. Think of it as not just the environment, but the whole of the atmosphere. That what God is doing in every way, down to every particle of the air, and every far-reaching scope of the atmosphere, God is flourishing his people. And that's what Jesus is calling us to in the Beatitudes To live in such a way that our all and the every of our being is pursuing, desiring God's blessing on our life. Let me give you another illustration to talk about the bigness of the scope of this. It's a very micro illustration, but it seems to illustrate a little better. We are blessed to live in the part of the world known as the Ozarks. And we live in a beautiful part of the world. I'm not saying other parts of the world aren't beautiful. I'm saying this is more beautiful. <laughs> That's a little lighthearted, okay? I mean, we live in a beautiful part of the world. If you don't believe me, let me take you to some places that aren't. But, but it's not about comparison. I don't want to draw that. I just want to say that, that, that every day we wake up, and, and here's how the world would even describe this, that the Ozarks consistently score high in quality of life factors, like cost of living is low, health care is, is high quality and readily accessible, and education is, is uh, abundant and the opportunities for it. Crime remains relatively low. Unemployment remains relatively low. The economy is relatively stable. And so all of these metrics by which they measure quality of life in the world, we score phenomenally high on. It doesn't mean we live in a perfect place, but it means we live in a place that has a lot more advantages than many other places do. 
I've lived here 19 years, and let me tell you one resounding phrase that most people have qualified this by. I moved here to get my little slice of heaven. Now, you can agree or disagree with that. That's not the point. I'm telling you that's what I've heard over and over again. Why? Because they're referencing the blessing of living in the Ozarks. We enjoy the blessedness because we live here. The beauty and the advantage of Ozarkia. Becoming hillbilly. Right? Yes, maybe not. The Beatitudes teach us, friends, that the greatest of God's blessings is not in the deliverance of his goods, but in knowing the giver. It is not in what we receive, but it is in the one from whom we receive it. That is not just a transaction. But it's a relationship in which we live. It is the house of true human happiness to live in God's blessing. I have said before that righteous living is its own reward. That righteous living isn't rewarding because of what it brings to you. Though there are many things it brings to you. It is its own reward. For the true reward of righteousness is not what's received by the, but the rewarder. It's not the gift, but the giver. It's not the reward of righteousness that we get for our own possessions, though we do. But it's the righteous one with whom we inhabit this life. Righteous living is its own reward because we live by the one who is righteous, Jesus Christ. And the Beatitudes are inviting us by God himself to dwell in the unfailing and unfading promise of joy and of of hope and his salvation that is this house of true human happiness and, and flourishing. But listen, friends, in this world, because it's not fully known yet, there are many lesser blessings that compete with trusting in God's blessedness. Self-sufficiency, aspirations, accomplishments, and accolades. And these all make God's blessing less desirable because they constantly tempt us to trust in something else, to value something more than the values that God sets forth for us. And while they may distinguish us in the world, he's very accomplished. She's done great things. We should honor her because of what she has accomplished. We should acknowledge him because of who he is and what he's done in his life. They may distinguish you in the world, but what the Beatitudes do is they mark us as God's people. I look at that life who lives by the values of God's kingdom, and I say, God is good and God is great. And that's how they distinguish us for him. I want to challenge you to be careful not to give a quick answer without a sober consideration of your life to this first question of whether or not you seek God's blessing. For every beatitude will press you in different ways and in various areas to consider whether the whole of your life is seeking God's blessing at all times. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 33, just a a chapter later in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He sets forth for us in this instruction and mandate to us what this very first question presses up on us to identify and to recognize what it is that we in our life hold of highest value for us. Because what you hold of 
of highest value will always receive your first energy, your first of everything in your seeking. And what you seek first with your life marks your life for whose you are. God's people are identified by seeking his kingdom first in all of life. Friends, seeking God's kingdom first and his promise catalyzes within us a life transformation as we hold his blessedness of highest esteem for our lives. I ask you every week to ask of yourselves, am I seeking God's kingdom first with all of my life? The second question extends from the first, and it's simply this. How do I embrace God's kingdom value, this beatitude with my life? Not to allow yourself to give a passing cursory affirmation, but to give pause with sober reflection that you might see the Spirit of God work within your heart specifically in areas and in ways, in actions and in attitudes to apply this beatitude, this value for living in God's kingdom. You see, beatitudes are never what we would call a natural tendency. We don't get there by default. It's not just something, well, I'm just a good guy, so that's just what I do, right? But sometimes we reduce it to that. You see, the Beatitudes are a disposition that are produced within us by the grace of God at work within us when the Holy Spirit is working out the truth of God's word. And whatever we may be by birth and nature, wherever we may have begun, every Christian is meant to be like the Beatitudes, to be in our life. The Christian's greatest testimony is that the greatest joy of my life is experienced in the fullest immersion into God's kingdom. And when I am most in the presence of God, ruled by Jesus, King, ruler of the kingdom, I am happiest. My joy is overflowing. My life is fullest. The light of a Christian's faithful witness burns brightest in the world when our life is marked by this joy in Jesus, regardless of what surrounds us. You need to avoid two extremes that I would caution you in in answering this and how do I value these in my life. And here are the two extremes to, uh, to avoid in evaluating how it is that you're embracing the Beatitudes. First of all, never reduce them to a legalistic morality by direct application of action. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, pitiful poor me. You know, a false humility. Blessed are those who mourn. Man, I had a good cry this morning before I got here. I'm good with God. I love a good cry. No, friends. You see, that's reducing it to something that you produce or that the world produces in you when it puts it on you. And not something that grows out of you because God is at work in you. That's the distinctive here, friends. And you need to avoid that first extreme. The second extreme is you need to not elevate them as an individual hyper-spiritual standard which no person could attain. Here's what you do by doing both of these. Oh, the poor in spirit. Usually what we do is we, we lower our voice a little bit inside. We take our glasses off, maybe put them to our mouth. Go, hmm. God, we start speaking to ourselves in these weird ways, you know. God would want, 
like, whoa. And usually you try King James English if you've ever heard it because it just sounds better. And if you can't do that, you use a British accent. (laughs) These are extremes we have to avoid, friends. Because anytime we answer this question without a sincere reflection, we always fall on one end or the other of the spectrum. Because what we do is we consider the command out of our own ability and absent of the gospel's redeeming power in us. But Christians apply Jesus' teaching in light of his work on the cross for us so that we deny the uselessness of self-sufficiency and the hopelessness of hyper-spirituality. Jesus contrasts each beatitude against a worldly value. And that very practice of the contrast helps us to build what I would call a filter of discernment for how we live in our life, uh, either naturally in our own sinful state by our own strength and power for the world's values or for self's values, or how we live the character of the Christian life by faith in Jesus Christ, living out in our action what he's doing within us in our life and every week when when the the beatitude is heralded for us and celebrated and proclaimed we hear that and we are immediately because of the work of the living word of God by the spirit that is illuminating his work in us he's showing us the ways in which we do not live poor in spirit as a matter of fact we don't even love the idea of being poor in spirit we don't live to mourn we don't even like the idea of being mournful we don't live to be persecuted we don't live this way because we don't even like the ideal of it, let alone the practice of it. And that's the spirit within us. And and the very contrast in the way that Matthew presents them and the way that Jesus teaches them helps us to understand how we ought to receive it. That we shouldn't just go, oh yeah, you're right, God, you're good, amen. All right, let's get back to life. No, 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 no. We should be confronted with the reality of the beauty and the glory of that beatitude as of a higher glory for our life than where we would live on our own, that we might faith by faith might repent and turn. Have you ever played a game where you say the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear a word? I don't like this game because I usually get in trouble. It just came to my mind. I don't know why, right? But that's kind of the way that you should approach each beatitude each week. When you hear it, you're like, whoa. Because I promise you, if you go, oh, that's so special, you're dismissing it, friends. You're not avoiding the extremes. You're running to them as a reactionary measure to subvert the gospel's work in your heart. And you need to realize, poor in spirit, there isn't anything about Lane that wants anything to do with that. But when the grace of God is working in me, that becomes of a greater glory than I could have ever imagined any other way. And let it confront us and let it show to us where our own self-character is flawed and perverted and skewed by sin. That the Spirit of God might apply the, the redemptive work of God through Jesus Christ to us and bring with a genuine hope and desire within us to be what God has redeemed us to be. Trusting Jesus to live out his kingdom values, it marks a life for God's glory by faith. Luke 9.23 gives us an incredible pattern for this. You see, the impossibility of living the Beatitudes is the very point of God's power upon us. 
And when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's interesting, as we look at the passage today, and Jesus is seated on the mountainside and they have come to him, we can hear him say, you came to hear me, but the point I want to make to you today is, will you follow me? Not will you entertain what I say, but through by receiving what I say, will you go and do what I've called you and commanded you to go and do. Verse 24 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This too is a contrast for us to understand in uh, answering this second question of how do I embrace God's kingdom value. For when we deny self, take up our cross and follow him by faith, his redeeming power through the gospel is working in us and he is leading us in his way everlasting, the way of life. But friends, when we follow some extreme of hyper-legalism or hyper-spiritualism so that we can dismiss the work of God in us and continue to live the way we want to live, We need to hear the warning of verse 24 because to deny the beatitude as of a higher glory is the seeking and the attempting of self-salvation. Following Jesus is where life transformation occurs in us by faith. And the beatitudes are the defining value that shape a Christian's life in attitude and in action. Listen to this. If Jesus taught the beatitudes, why? Why did he teach the Beatitudes? Because he expects us to obey them. Are you embracing God's kingdom value with the first of your life? The third question extends from the second. Not only do I seek God's blessing with all of my life, how do I embrace God's kingdom value as first with my life? But then ultimately, where is the Holy Spirit convicting me to repent and to walk in that righteousness? This whole pattern of contrast in the Beatitudes forms the very pattern for which Christians should receive them. It's the pattern of repentance from sin and self and following after Jesus by faith. You see, repentance begins with a change of mind And it culminates with an obedience that is defined by Jesus' righteousness. A, A change of mind is not merely a spiritual decision of the internal life. I feel good about that, God. Okay, let's go on. It's not an intellectual conclusion. It's not an emotional response. It's not a willful exertion. These are all ways in which we respond so quickly to God's word, but they're also one of the two extremes by which we can avoid the real work of God through his word in our life. You see, the Beatitudes confront where we're out of step with godliness to change our conduct in accordance with the new nature given to us in Jesus Christ, but not just in strict outward action, but because of what he's doing within us is growing out and leading us differently. For when the glory of God's kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ captures our affection and his values command our attention, his truth will command our ethic. And so Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, sat down, welcomed the people to come to him. Do you have a vision for gathering and worship to hear the word of God, 
And he opened his mouth and taught them. Friends, every week, God wants to speak to you. Not just through the person. We're, we're little more than instruments. But through the word and through the spirit to bring life in you. Will you receive it as of highest value and esteem? Pursue it with the first of all of who you are. And repent of where sin has misguided and deceived you. So that by faith you can follow into the life that Jesus is teaching and giving to us in his righteousness. I'll close with one final quote. And I'll ask the worship team to return while I do this. This quote's from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I felt like it captured the essence of this series so well. He was a medical doctor who turned pastor and theologian of the 20th century, one of the most proficient speakers in the Christian faith. He says this about the Beatitudes. If I do not want to be like this, I just be dead in trespasses and sin. I can never have received new life. But if I feel that I am unworthy and yet I want to be like that, well, however unworthy I may be, If this is my desire and my ambition, there must be new life in me. I must be a child of God. I must be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and of God's dear son. Let every person examine himself or herself. Friends, Jesus set you free and he transforms you to live and God's blessing by his kingdom values.